Welcome to Madame Podcast. Today's special guest is Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III, who is Senior Pastor of Trinity United Church of Christ in Chicago and the founder of the Unashamed Media Group. In this episode, he shares about his film, Otis's Dream, his open letter to his son, Elijah, Dr. King, retribution, spirituality, and so much more. Please stay tuned. Madang is sponsored by Methodist Theological School in Ohio. MTSO provides theological education and leadership in pursuit of a just, sustainable, and generative world. MTSO's five graduate degrees include the Master of Divinity, Master of Arts in Social Justice, and Doctor of Ministry. Learn more at www.mtso.edu. Hello, fellow traveler. If you are like a lot of us today, you're probably worn out from the stress of the pandemic and need a break from all of the political, polarizing noise that surrounds us. Please consider joining us at Southern Lights Conference, January 13 to 15, 2023, on beautiful St. Simon Island, Georgia, as we reimagine faith in word, the world, the cosmos. We invite you to gather with us live and virtually, share with like-minded sojourners, and connect with the beauty of creation. For sponsorship inquiries, please email madangpodcast.gmail.com. This is Madang, an outdoor living room for guests to share their experiences and their work. I invite you to come in and stay for a while. Welcome to Madang. Today's very special guest is the Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III, who was a senior pastor of Trinity United Church of Christ in Chicago, Illinois. He is a preacher, poet, activist, author, community organizer, scholar, filmmaker, and the founder of the Unashamed Media Group. In October 2020, Dr. Moss created Otis's Dream, a short film about his grandfather's unsuccessful attempt to vote in 1946. The film has received numerous awards and acclaimed across the country. Dr. Moss was identified by the Baylor University George W. Truett Theological Seminary as one of the 12 most effective preachers in English language in 2018. Along with his ministerial duties, he is a professor of homiletics at Mercer University's Maccabee School of Theology in Atlanta, Georgia. Today, he is with me on Madang Podcast to discuss his latest book, Dancing in the Darkness, Spiritual Lessons for Thriving in Turbulent Times, published by Simon and Schuster. Some of the um, acclaims, like Dr. Teresa Al Fry, who's an Associate Dean of Academic Affairs, writes, Otis Moss III shows us how we can attune ourselves to God's spiritual direction. He delivers prophetic and life-affirming experiences to help us achieve justice and salvation. Jim Wallace, who's the inaugural chair and director of the George, Georgetown Center on Faith and Justice, writes, Moss writes the words from our ancient scriptures and prophetically applies them to our most urgent moral battles and choices. 
in ways that makes the Bible come alive again. So today I'm so grateful to have Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III with me on Madang Podcast. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. It is a delight to be with you, Doc. Thank you so very much. Oh, well, thank you so much for saying yes to come on. It's just a joy to have you and see you. I haven't seen you in many years since the pandemic hit. And right. you know, we made plans to come to your church to do a book signing for Reverend Jackson. So hopefully we can see each other in person sooner than later. So we have to set that up. So we're going to put a rain check there and we're going to make sure that that happens because we do want you to come and do a book signing because you did a magnificent job <laughs> with the book on, on Reverend Jackson. Well, thank you so much. And I have to say your book, Dancing in the Darkness, it is so important. It is such an interesting, you know, it has your story weaved in with so many things that's happening in our culture and society. It is superb. But before we get into your exciting new book, let's talk about your film, Otis's Dream. I watched it and it is so beautiful. So tell us how you started it and what it means to you. Oh, well, well thank you for, for, for asking that question. It's really been a labor of love. The story of my grandfather has been told over and over again by, by my father. Um, and just to give you a background of how this story developed, this is a part of his preaching tradition. When he was always sharing about the importance of voting, he would share the story of his, of his father, which became a part of family lore and church lore uh, at the Olivet Institutional Baptist Church in Cleveland, Ohio, where he, where he pastored. And so he was preaching for the Congressional Black Caucus prayer breakfast in 1980, maybe it was 83, maybe, maybe it was 82. It was, it was somewhere in the early 80s, from my understanding. And he told this story. It was a part of, part of the message that he shared. There was a young reporter and soon-to-be uh, media maven who was in the audience who was reporting and heard this story. And this story stuck with her. And so this, this young woman uh, gets her own show in Chicago. Uh, her name was Oprah Winfrey. And so, so Oprah is doing a show on voting in 88. Wow. And on a whim, she tells the story of my grandfather. And she has used that story over and over again, anytime that she has to do a stump speeches around the importance of voting. She wow. always shares the story of, 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 my, of my grandfather. So wow. a woman in Columbus, Ohio, uh, heard the story, contacted me, her name was Jenny Morgan, contacted me via email saying, I would love to touch base with your father. I'm a teacher. I wrote a song <clears throat> that hopefully young children can learn about your, you know, your grandfather's story, your father's uh, father's story, and I'd love for them to hear it. And so I set up a Zoom with my parents um, and Sister Jenny uh, plays the song that she had created. And, and after, uh, the Zoom, our family was talking and we, were, and we and I was saying to my father, I said, Dad, you know, we, we need to create something around uh, 
your father's story, some type of film. And he was in agreement. My mother was in agreement. My wife was in agreement. And that's when I began the work on the script. And so I worked on the script for quite some time and then decided to send the script to people who were, quote, in the industry. I wasn't going to send it to any church people, but they'll say, oh, this is wonderful. No, I wanted to send to people who literally would critique it and give me, I wasn't looking to produce it. I just said, I need honest feedback so that I can work on it, maybe take another workshop in terms of script writing and all of that. So several people that I sent it to, they were like, you know, this is a really good script. We really like this script. This is, and they said, how can I help you produce this? And I said, oh, and I was really shocked. Uh, there was one gentleman by the name of Keith Walker. Uh, Keith Walker uh, had a relationship with a friend of our family and suggested our friend um, suggested that we reach out to Keith and he, he would be a good, you know, advisor. He could read your script and give you some advice. And Keith was also the uh, cinematographer uh, for, for the Obamas and for, for Oprah. I, did, I didn't know it at the time, but I, you know, I just heard that he was a documentary filmmaker. So I send him uh, the script. I'm actually giving him the pitch. I wanted some feedback. He stops me as I'm talking. And he said, Reverend Moss, I was the director of photography on the John Lewis documentary, Good Trouble. As we were recording, Oprah was stumping for Stacey Abrams. And so we were getting what they call B-roll. And I was recording uh, Oprah also and Stacey Abrams. And she told the story of your grandfather. And at that moment, I said, that needs to be a film. And he said, that was several years ago. And then here you what are. Year is that? What, what year is that? Um, he, so what Stacey Abrams was running, so that must have been, was that 2020? No, 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 that would have been 20, yeah, 20. No, he was filming for, for the John Lewis documentary. That must have been like 2019. You know, there's usually about two years that they have to film these documentaries. They follow someone around. So it must have been 2018, 2019, somewhere in there. And they were getting some extra B-roll during the election as Stacey Abrams was running for, uh, for governor at the time. And Oprah happened to be uh, where they were recording and John Lewis was showing up, you know, for, for that stump and all of that. And he then says, what can I do in order to assist you? I can be a co-producer. You need a director of photography. This is an important story and I can bring my expertise. And so Keith came on board. We then had another producer by the name of Stacy Buckner. Uh, Invisible Landscapes, uh, the directors, Jason and Blue Gerber. And then we utilized a variety of people from our church who did the costuming and makeup and our own Brian Johnson does the music. And only God could bring together all of these elements. And so Keith does something, we're just so grateful to him. He said, look, I will come at cost. I will bring my own equipment. And the equipment that he brought to the table, there was no way we could have afforded the equipment. So he brings the same cameras that are used on Game of Thrones. So we have this high level look because 
you know, Brother Keith says, this is an important story. And as he would say, he would say, this is an evergreen story. We need to share the story about voting. And he said, I think that this film can be used for the next 20 or so years to teach young people about the importance of voting. And so we then begin to, you know, look for sets and uh, locations and, and all of that. And uh, we didn't have the funding to do the uh, full narrative. And Jason and Blue Gerber said, you know what, you know, in terms of, of the money to build all these sets, it's going to cost X, Y, and Z. Uh, why don't we, the, the portions that we were going to build sets around, why don't we have your father tell the story and then we can, we can condense some of the sets and then we can then go to the, the narrative that we've created. And so that's actually how we ended up uh, shifting the script so that my father would then introduce the story. Then I would share a little portion of the story. Then my son would share a little portion of the story. But in between, we had all of the reenactment uh, of, of the story. And things kept coming together in terms of people working uh, with us. Um, and it was just so beautiful. I mean, we had, you know, there were donations in reference to period cars when they found out what we were doing. Um, they said, hey, we will do this at, uh, at, at cost. Um, it, it, the, some of the locations, which were, uh, we used DuSable Museum. Uh, we used a, a, a library. Um, we, we used, we were on somebody's farm. <laughs> and, and everybody was just, when we shared what we were doing, people were like, whatever you need. Whatever, I mean, every single door was opened and we were able within uh, a three-day shoot uh, to complete this film uh, that um, has the look of a film close to a million dollars, but we were able to literally do it on a shoestring budget. That is amazing. It is so beautiful. You would have thought you. you raised millions and millions of dollars to do this. Thank you for sharing all that backstory because I had no idea Oprah was telling these story, the story of your grandpa. This is amazing. And as you were talking, I just thought, I felt like I was just speaking with your father because you have very similar voices. And actually you do I look like yeah, and you look so much like your father, but this is so beautifully done. I just, I can't believe all this backstory of how everything came back, came together. You know, when I was younger, I've always dreamed of being an actress. So if you ever do another film, I'll do it for cheap. Oh, absolutely. We will keep you in mind for sure. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But anyway, the narration is so beautiful. So I hope people will continue to use it. You thought you mentioned that you thought maybe 20 years, people, I think it'd be used hundreds of years down the road mm. because I feel like it's an, almost like a historical kind of, you know, people don't know exactly. The importance of voting is important, but then what actually happened to African-Americans during that time? People have lost, you know, after a few generations, people forget. So I think this is just so important story that you are sharing. And it was just so beautifully produced. I Those listeners right now, if you haven't seen it, please go watch Otis's Dream. And you won how many awards for this? Uh, I think it, now it's 18, 18 awards. What? 
in the are there uh, even that many awards you can win <laughs> <laughs> so oh from uh, from from great britain to across the united states uh so the i will tell film um uh, festival the la film awards the chicago independent award the roxbury uh, international film festival um the martha's vineyard uh, uh film <laughs> festival uh there, there's just uh, the um, March on Washington <laughs> Film Festival. The, uh, we got we've we've won best narrative, best narrative short, uh, best narrative short documentary, uh, oh costume, best best actor. Uh, oh my goodness! Composer, best composer. Um, you know we've been honorable mentions for you know for for best film in in, in several of of these spaces. It is. It oh. is literally the little film that could. It is. It is a is fourteen amazing. minutes, and every festival that we have been accepted to, well, just about every festival we've accepted to, we we won an award in in with those festivals. I shouldn't be that surprised because that actually it is award worthy, you know, film. I just didn't know you can win that many awards. You won everything but the Oscars. <laughs> like, my goodness. Congratulations. I didn't you. realize you won. Like I saw some social media pictures and you writing stuff that you won this and this, but I didn't know it amounted to 18. Mm -hmm. Congratulations, because Thank I you. feel, you know, this is enormous work and you had to deal with so many people. You listed all, and I just can't even keep, keep track of all these people that you had to work with. Congratulations. That you are amazing. You are a minister, you are a professor, you're a writer, a filmmaker. This is Wow, you are an inspiration. Now I got to move into the filming industry. <laughs> but what an inspiration. Thank you so much for sharing that and Thank sharing it with the world. Yeah, I hope it gets translated into different languages, if that's ever possible. I, or you said so. subtitles are available, I guess. But it is so beautifully done. People around the world need to know. Um, the African-American story and the history and, you know, why we need to vote. That's so important, but the whole history of why we need to vote, because we weren't, you weren't allowed to vote. So I think this, it just brought tears to my eyes and wow. So thank you so much for sharing that whole story. And I had no idea about Oprah and how you, you know, you, Oprah knows your whole family story. So, wow, that is Truly amazing. Thank you so much. Um, now let's get into your forthcoming book. It is so interesting. And you had um, Dr. Er Michael Eric Dyson write your foreword. And I just, you know, once I read the foreword, I just couldn't get, I couldn't wait to dig into your work. But this is what, what he says. He says, Moss is a magnificent fusion of radical biblical theology an uplifting American moral philosophy. No matter how dark the night becomes, no matter how traumatic the times turn, Moss and the people who have loved and shaped him believe that we must never yield to cynicism or hopelessness. I just thought, you know what, the whole foreword is so beautiful, but I just picked those few sentences. It's so moving and what a nice foreword. You must have been so touched. Oh, I was I was so blessed that Dr. Dyson was willing to uh, to write the foreword, have great respect for his his writing and his his work and his scholarship. 
and it was very kind of him to to lend his time and busy schedule to to create uh, the forward for for the, for the book. Yeah, it, it's so beautifully written. <clears throat> it just sets the whole stage for your entire book. And so you begin the book with um, an open letter to your son, Elijah. I love your son's name, Elijah. Uh, for You wrote it for Sojourners Magazine. So what made you write this letter to your son, an open letter? Well, the, the letter was was written in the uh, the wake of the death of Philando Castile, who, whose death was filmed on uh, on on camera with uh, with with a with, with a camera phone, and I remember watching that and having conversations with my son who watched that, and the pressure that was on him as he was trying to make sense of the of that moment raising the question am i next you know will will this will this happen to me and and that's where the letter comes about the first the letter was you know just literally to my son uh that that i said you know i want you to hold on to this that you know maybe more of this will make me more sense when you're a little older and and then publishing that letter that you know sojourners was so kind to to publish it but the need to communicate as as a father to my son, the truth of what it means to be a person of, of African descent in America and the power of his faith, his history, his family connection, the love that his family and the ancestors have for, for him and his work, that he knows that it's difficult but you come from a beautiful and powerful tradition. And that's what I wanted to convey to him. Well, thank you so much for writing. And I'll just uh, read a portion. It says, if I tell you these things, my words will be perjury before God and an assault upon the memories of our ancestors. So today I must share a hard truth with you. The truth, my son, is that you are not safe. You know, reading that, it was... So tear-jerking because I've never had to do that with my son. Before I interviewed you, my previous um, podcast guest was um, Dean Kelly Brown Douglas. And in her book, Resurrection Hope, she has the same kind of dialogue with her son, a Black son. So I don't, like, it must be so heart-wrenching to talk this through with your own child because we should not have to do this. But the mm -hmm. fact that my previous guest had to do this and then you have to do this, I don't know, how do you, like, how do you overcome this kind of pain that as an African-American father or just a man that you have to go through this? You know, I think it's, it's, it's important to embrace it, not as something you joyfully embrace, but to embrace the fact that you want to arm your children with the truth you want to arm them with the spiritual resources not to survive but to thrive and flourish you want to arm them with uh, the theology and philosophy of how to to live the good life and how to deepen their spirit and it's a rite of passage for a black father it's a rite of passage for black children unfortunately and we have to give rituals and methodology 
for parents to be able to share difficult truth with our children. And if we are willing to embrace these rituals, rituals can give you a map that will take you out of moments of darkness. Wow. It just to write, I think for me, if I had to write, you are not safe, that would be so painful. But the fact that you did it, and thank you for sharing it with the world, because you got so much response from it. And I, I is it safe to say that that led you to writing this larger, the it, book? It, it did. It, it did. It was it got the, uh, there was an amazing response uh, to, uh, to, to the letter. And the response, majority positive, uh, but there was always, there's always some strange uh, evangelical person who's, you know, like, why are you doing this? And you have to always, you know, you know, put them in the right space um, and put them in their place. Um, but yeah, part of part of that moment was the reason for this book not only the the fact that I have to say to my son, you are not safe, but that we are in a moment in American history where we are desiring something deeper. There's a, this is a spiritual moment where our fights, whether right or left or, you know, blue or red state, whatever they may be, is really also about that there is a spiritual anemia within our nation. Mm. And we are trying to replace them with a philosophy of materialism or a very limited truncated theology uh, that uh, looks at everything as being just happy and okay and doesn't want to truly develop uh, a deep and holistic uh, theology. Uh, or a political philosophy that is just a hierarchy. You know, uh, I'm a winner, you're a loser, not realizing that we we all lose in the process until we, just like what King speaks of, we build a beloved community. And not that we will get there, but that we put the necessary foundation, work through the spiritual values that allow us to move in that direction and create, as I say in the book, uh, create what we call a complete life. Mm -hmm. One that is spiritual, one that is personal in our personal interactions, and one that is social or community centered. That that's how we build a complete life, the mm -hmm. spiritual, personal, and the, and the community. And, and the book is attempting to say, here are the values. Here's how you map your way out of these dark moments. And here's how you learn how to dance when you're in your darkness. Yeah. Well, it's so beautifully written. And so, as you mentioned, you know, I find it a very spiritual book. It's a historical book, <laughs> a theological book, um, uh, so many things, political, so much intertwined. And in the book, you quote Dr. King a lot and you reference him. So share with us, like, I didn't know about your family kind of somehow connected with Oprah, but you know, you have this long legacy. So share with us, especially the listeners who may not know of who your father is and the whole legacy that you're part of, share with us the, your connection with Dr. King. 
Sure, sure. Well, both of my parents were involved in the the, the freedom movement. Uh, my my mother was one of the office managers and executive secretaries for the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, um, and my father was. Uh, one of the organizers of what was called the student sit-in movement in Atlanta that desegregated Atlanta when he was a student at Morehouse School of Religion, the Interdenominational Theological Center that people call the ITC. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's really what what launched him into <clears throat> launched him into uh, into the movement. And then he became a part of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and became uh, a lieutenant in the Southern Christian Leadership Conference as an organizer. And then eventually on the board of of the SCLC, my parents met in uh, in the movement, and the the wedding ceremony was performed uh, by Dr. King, uh, one of the uh, uh, the the best men uh, groomsmen uh, was was Andrew Young, uh, the bridesmaid was Jean Young, um, and when they threw, I almost have had the picture here. Do you have it? Show us. I did not know Dr. King. Yeah, go get the picture. I had no idea that Dr. King officiated the wedding. I knew that he was working and your mom was working there. (laughs) I had no idea that he officiated. Please show us the picture. I have a picture here. Uh This is the... um, Hold it up. SCLC, let's give you the background. SCLC had their annual convention in 1966, which was also... In preparation, Dr. King had moved to Chicago. They were moving toward what is called the Poor People's Campaign. So the annual convention, um, you know, my father had proposed to my mother, and Dr. King and Coretta Scott King threw my parents an, an engagement party. So at this, I don't know if you can see this. At this engagement party, uh-huh. you have the engagement party, you have Ralph Abernathy, Hosea oh. Williams. Dr. King, Coretta Scott King, uh, you have Fred Shuttlesworth, you have Andrew Young, you have uh, Bob and Letty Green, you have Dr. King's uh, attorney. Uh, there's some other names that I'm forgetting of, but you have the entire brain trust of the civil rights movement who throw my parents their, um, their, 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 their engagement party. And then you have my parents there. That is such a beautiful picture. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing it. Do you have their sure. wedding picture? Do you have their wedding I, picture? I don't have the wedding picture oh, but here in, in the office. Wow. Um, but the wedding picture, you had, I mean, I look, the wedding Amazing. picture, you see, see Dr. King and Coretta Scott King, and you see my parents and, you know, and, and all of that. Um, and, and so that's how they got connected to the movement. My father served as co-pastor at Ebenezer. So after the assassination of, of Dr. King, uh, my father became one the, the pastor. He was to take over for, for Daddy King. Um, now, eventually, he, he didn't stay, uh, you know, but a year and a half, two years, and, and was called to another church, uh, but has had a deep relationship with the, with the King family because they were, you know, they were a part, they were comrade in arms in terms of, of, of the movement, my mother and 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 father with uh, the work of all of these wonderful uh, freedom workers uh, throughout the South. 
That is an amazing story. I had no idea. Well, I knew they were all working together. I had no idea that um, he officiated the wedding and, you know, that they were all together with the engagement party. That's a beautiful thing. So thank you so much for sharing. And in the book, you quote Dr. King so much. And you said Dr. King offered a unified approach to all of life's tests political mm -hmm. and personal, something we can all carry with us as we walk our paths. So I don't know if you wanted to share a bit more about that or, sure. yeah. Yeah, so Dr. King talks about the complete life, that life must be spiritual, uh, that recognition that there's an interconnectedness with all of us and there is something greater than us. But life is also, it is, it is personal. It is uh, the relationships that you have with other people, but it is your self-development. And then there, life also demands that we have this social community component where we seek to create a better world. Mm -hmm. And when we seek inner spiritual growth, when we are seeking personal growth, and when we are seeking community growth, then we're living in a complete life. And that is how we learn to dance in the darkness, in moments of, of division in, in our nation, we seek a complete life. And in the book, I attempt to share how we do that. What are the principles on the personal level and on the collective level? So you must link love and justice together. Uh, we must learn to redirect our rage so that we can empower and not just uh, be a burning flame, uh, but not doing something that will be transformative. We've got to learn how to stop and pause liberation listening. And we've got to learn how to grieve appropriately, mm -hmm. not pathetic grief, but prophetic grief, the kind of grief that stares into uh, the darkness, but refuses to fall into uh, despair. And we've got to rewrite our origin story. We, we, we can't allow other people to write our story for us. We have to write our origin story. So in, in the book, I'm also a comic book nerd. So I, so I lift up some uh, aspects out of, of comic books in terms of the origin story of superheroes and things of that nature. And then I talk about the origin story of Dr. King, of the community that he came from, that if you know that origin of the uh, fourth ward in Atlanta, better known as Auburn Avenue, and the people that he was around and the institutions that he was nurtured by, you understand his power. And his power does not come from Crozier uh, Theological Seminary, but his power comes from the organic intellectual and spiritual tradition uh, that rose up out of that Auburn community that comes out of that unique Black Southern religiosity. Wow, so beautiful, so beautifully said. And I think that even ties in with the film that we were talking about too, that, you know, to know your story and then passing it on to your son and hopefully his children on and, and continues on to know where we have come from is so important. And so in the book, in your book, you also bring in, you know, scripture and you tie it all in. And, and for me, what really struck me was when you're talking about retribution, you said mm. it feeds our hunger. Yes but not for long. In the moment, violent action feels like taking power, correcting an injustice. 
But even when vengeance is deserved, deserved, it does not set things right. For mm -hmm. me, you know, the, you know, right off, you just want, you know, retribution, you know, we think that will solve everything, but you go in really deeply. So did you want to say more about that? Because I think that was such an important part of the book. It just really mm -hmm. perked me up. And I thought, yes, I've been doing things wrong for a long time. And that's interesting that you had mentioned that. This is interesting. That's that's my son's favorite part of the book. Uh, oh, so he said, oh, yeah, I really he, liked he, it too. Yeah, he says yeah. that that is his favorite part. He said, yeah, dad, when you're talking about grief, Mm -hmm. And you're talking about this idea of that you can, you know, seek vengeance, yeah. uh, but how do we seek transformation? That's the real, that's the real key, because when you seek vengeance, um, you are satisfied with empty calories for a moment. But when you seek transformation, it, it is a completely different uh, engagement. Uh, so I use the example, I use a lot of different examples. This is one example I use and they're talking about uh, how sports utilizes this idea of how, how do we write these particular wrongs? And I'm a basketball head. I love basketball. And I talk about the fact that you have rules that are set. You violate the rules. Someone is punished by the, you know, as a result, and they get a free shot that are known as a free throw. And the idea is that when someone violates something, then the team collectively puts pressure on the person who has violated for corrective action. But at the same time that it calls for justice because you violated, the other side also gets an opportunity, a free shot uh, in order to improve the score. And sports gives us this. You know, in hockey, you, you know, you're in the penalty box and all of a sudden it's like, you know, there's only four of us out here. There's supposed to be five. And now we've got to struggle because you decided for vengeance instead of functioning within the particular rules. Uh, same thing in soccer. Hey, you get, you get a free kick, you get a penalty kick, whatever, whatever it may be. You have these elements in, in certain sports uh, that speak to the idea of, of justice, but not justice as retribution. Uh, but speak of distributive justice. In order, in other words, how do we level the playing field versus just seeking punishment? And America has always been centered on retribution in its justice system and not distributive justice. Distributive justice is about leveling the playing field, is about redemption, is is about restoration how do we allow someone to become fully human and be able to flourish so that they will not repeat what they have been doing and in the process the community learns and the victimizer learns and the victim is not hidden but given an opportunity to say that this person uh, is held accountable but at the same time, one of the greatest moments when you have been victimized is that you now know that that will not happen again because this person has been restored in a way that they will now share the story of how they came to this point. And now I want to make sure that no one else goes down the same road. That's restorative justice. And that's what this nation needs. Restorative justice, not punitive and retribution. 
Yeah. Thank you. I just felt like you were preaching and it's like so beautifully said. So <laughs> thank you so much. And and it's true. You know, some countries in Europe are more, they're not like Americans, the punitive. They do try to do restorative justice and their jails look so different. It's like some, uh, like a community, not mm -hmm. jails that we're so used to here. So I think you're making such an important point in the book and you tie that in with, you know, with the whole Dylan Roof when um, he went in and murdered you know that i think is so painful for the african-american community but you were able to kind of reflect on it so spiritually i thought it was so beautifully said and then you tie you know as i mentioned before you bring in scripture and i love the way you know the season of advent and we all talk about the birth story of christ and you you show that whole birth um the the what is it the family tree Yes. Um, in the Gospel of Matthew. So why don't you say a bit more for our listeners about well, that? Yeah. I've always loved the, the birth story, and I've always loved what the scripture, especially in the, in the gospel about the birth of, of Jesus, does in a very powerful way. It is really a subversive way of, to use modern language, to throw shade at the Roman Empire on one level. Because in the if you are a Caesar emperor you clean up your family tree so no one knows if there was anyone in your family that was quote unquote not perfect but here you have and we usually skip over the names you have in the birth of jesus they start listing names of people that are scoundrels <laughs> and so <laughs> thank and, you for saying scoundrels i haven't heard that. straight up scoundrel <laughs> I mean, there's many of them you probably wouldn't even like at all. So, I mean, I, I, within the African-American tradition, we, 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 many times we frame the patriarchs in the scripture as people who are contradictory and problematic. For example, we love to say, Abraham, Abraham was great. And, but in the African-American tradition, we say, well, Abraham also had an issue with attempting to pimp his wife. So here you have someone who's like, yeah, I'll sell you my wife. You can have my wife. I was like, who is this guy? You know, then you have someone like Jacob. Yeah, I'm going to steal my brother's birthright. <laughs> you have Moses, who is a murderer, okay? And then you have David, who is absolutely one of the worst fathers in all of scripture. And, but yet he was, he's a great leader in terms of military strategy. Then you have in, in, in Jesus's, uh, genealogy, you have this wonderful, and I say wonderful, she is, this woman named Rahab, but who was also a prostitute. So this would never happen in Rome. You would never list any of these people because they, I guess, pollsters would have looked and said, you know what, the people will not like this. So we want to make sure that we erase these people from the genealogy. But within this Jewish tradition, you say you include all of the brokenness, the scoundrels, the grotesque, the marginalized, and the hidden. And then you come to Mary and Joseph, and then you come to Jesus. It is one of the most beautiful acts of literature because it, all of a sudden we can see ourselves. We can see our whole family tree that we have some people in our family who are like Solomon. They got a whole lot of people on the side 
<laughs> you know, so a whole lot of lies. Oh, they're real smart, but but you know, they got a whole lot of people on the side. And we have some people who have, you know, very much Moses mentalities. If you look in their past, it says, you know what? Jimmy's a great guy, but you do know what he did to uh, David, you know, Jones back in the day. You know, I mean, we, we have these people as if they're, they're in our family. You know, I mean, Noah, you know, Noah likes liquor. <laughs> he gets drunk. That's Noah. So, so these are these are ordinary everyday people and scripture doesn't shy away from it. <laughs> you got the uh, best preacher award because you, <laughs> I can listen to you all day. I've heard um, your father, Otis Ma Reverend Moss Jr. preach and he just threw me off. I was like blown away, but you are incredible. So thank you for, you know, making the scriptures come alive because what all these people that you mentioned it's so true you know and you know we do want to make everything look pretty in our own family but this is the family tree that Jesus came from and it just laid out right in front of us but many of us we just skim over it because we can be, we can care less about these names right. but you bring it to life and so thank you for doing that I just I just love this part of the book too because of how you point out you know not many women are included in that genealogy but Rahab the prostitute is because they want to somehow highlight that woman. You know, we're always the sinful ones. We're the sinners anyway. So, but it Rahab was revolutionary. I love Rahab. I mean, Rahab, literally, she is saving Israel. Yeah. So, you know, that when they march around the, the walls of Jericho, I, in, my, in my preaching mind, in that, in that imagination, I imagine all the walls fell except one section, Rahab's house. You know, so, so in other words, you know, the baker's house fell, the banker's house fell, everybody else, but, 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 but Rahab, you know, because she said, any, they said, anyone who's in your house and that there is a, a symbol that, that you have trusted in Jehovah, your house will not fall. I mean, it's just, it's, it's absolutely beautiful yeah. that the salvation of, of Israel is connected to a murderer in Moses and a prostitute in Rahab. I mean, it's just, it's, it's amazing when you begin to look at how scripture is trying to share the ordinary and the grotesque to show about the power of, of grace and human flourishing. Yeah, that's, I think that's so beautifully said. And even in your book, you, you write through violence, you may murder a murderer, but you can't murder murderer. And I just, you know, I had to read that over several times because I think what you're saying is so true. You know, we want this, uh, you know, retribution. We want something bad done. But if God can use Moses, a murderer, you know, that is amazing because, you know, I actually was in Egypt. I never, you know what, I learned about uh, the pharaohs and about Egypt in elementary school. I never thought I'll ever go to Egypt, but I ended up being in Egypt um, this fall and all over Egypt. You know, I think there's like 90% are Muslims in Egypt and then 10% are Christians. But, you know, Christians, Muslims and Jews all talk about Moses. So there's pictures of Moses everywhere, stained glass windows of Moses. Everybody talks about Moses and they're always mentioning 
it, it happened because he was a murderer and he had to flee. <laughs> so, but it's interesting, you know, we do emphasize that it is this murderer, you know, that eventually frees um, the enslaved. It's it's incredible the grace of God and how God uses the worst people on the planet essentially to do the work of God. It, it's unbelievable and using Rahab and you know you just said it so beautifully. So thank you for sharing it and then connecting that with Dylan Roof, where you know so many of us are triggered and we just think, oh, how can someone like that do this? Um, to innocent people. So I I just think you do it so beautifully in the book, like no one else can do. So I just really, really enjoyed that part. I think that's an important piece uh, about Dylan Roof in that Dylan Roof was not some anomaly. Mm -hmm. Dylan Roof was created. He was nurtured, yeah. was developed. Mm -hmm. And we want... Dylan Roof executed, but in reality, there is a system, there is a Confederate and antebellum menu that serves the Dylan Roofs of the world. And, and that's where we don't want to look. And that becomes the process of grieving appropriately when we raise the question not let us deal with Dylan Roof. How do we remove the conditions that create and birth Dylan Roof? I, I think you did a great job talking about that because we don't look at the what the conditions were. We just look at him and we got to get rid of him because he's evil. He killed, he's a murderer. But mm -hmm. I, I really appreciate, and I think that's a part of Christianity that we sometimes don't want to deal with because it's difficult it's too hard and it hits us and it takes a lot of work to do mm -hmm. that we just want to do it quickly and just get rid of him and whoever else is like Dylan Roof so I thought you you did it so beautifully and and then you moved on and this part I wasn't aware that this was happening you also bring in Westboro Church protest um, that came to your church I, I, I had no idea that that happened and you brought that in. So did you want to share a little bit? Because then you tied it in with the dancing in the darkness. That was during the time period in 2008 when uh, Senator Obama was running for president, who, you know, Senator Obama was a, was a member of Trinity United Church of Christ. And they had taken the words of Dr. Jeremiah Wright, Dr. Jeremiah Wright Jr., my predecessor, completely, utterly out of context. Uh, and it was actually a very good sermon of God versus government that he was talking. <laughs> Uh, it was a great sermon. If only uh, they heard the whole sermon, right? Yeah, nobody heard the whole sermon. I mean, you have to hear the whole sermon. It's like, you know, they took a snippet and then they said, ah, this is what it's about. No, nope, it's about God, you know, versus government. And he said um, that this is what governments will do. Uh, but God, but God, I mean, it's, it's a great message. Um, and so they took that message and the Obamas were not there, were present at, there, even if when the message was preached, you know, but even if they had been there, it still wouldn't have been an issue. Uh, it, was, it was a good message. Um, and so I remember I had just become pastor. Um, Dr. Wright, he's retired. He was gone. Uh, I'm working out at, uh, I think it was an LA Fitness Bally's or something like that. And somebody taps me on the shoulder. I'm on the treadmill. They're like, is that your church on TV? I look up and I'm like, oh my gosh. Uh, and there was Sean Hannity screaming 
talking about this awful place, you know, in this, this church. And I was like, I got to go. And as a result of that, things just exploded. So there were 40 outlets outside of our church every single Sunday. Our emails were flooded with all of this hate mail. And we started getting um, letters uh, that were threatening to kill uh, Dr. Wright, threatening to kill myself, threatening to blow up the church, uh, all of that. So all of this just started flooding in and the Westboro people decide to show up one Sunday. And, and, and uh, just the spirit of God moved in, in a unique way. This, for those who are not familiar with uh, Reverend Phelps and, and I don't even, I should not say Reverend, that's really a term I shouldn't use for him at all. Just Phelps and his church, which is pretty much made up of people he's related to. Uh, they show up in their, their hate group and they bring these awful signs and they, they bring cameras and awful signs. The signs usually speak in uh, very stark, racialized language, uh, and it's designed specifically to get an, uh, a reaction so that they can record the reaction and then also sue at the same time. That's their MO. So they want to call you the N-word, but then they want you to punch them so they can sue you. <laughs> so I mean that that's their whole MO. So so they're out there saying these awful things about Senator Obama, Senator at the time, saying these awful things about people coming into the church. And uh when we heard that they were out there in front of the church, uh, when it got alerted from security, I was like, Oh Lord, what are, you know, what are we gonna do? I'm freaking out. I'm brand new there. And the choir is about to march in. And I run to the choir. I said, before y'all go, I, I, I believe that uh, we have to do something that God is speaking in this moment. I, I need you all so that we can protect uh, the integrity of this church. Uh, we're going to go outside. We have some protesters, but I need you to surround them. And I need you to sing so loudly that people can't hear their voices because they had these megaphones and whatnot. And the choir was like, all right, you know, so we had a quick prayer. We went outside and the choir in their choir robes is like they're surrounding Phelps and his church. This little light of mine. I mean, they're just singing to the, you know, to the glory of God. And to see a five foot three grandmother uh, singing with all authority and power to this six foot four, you know, kind of broad, large you know, a heavy set, you know, white guy who's just, just offering these awful obscenities, but she refuses to back down. And they're singing with such power that they get pushed off the sidewalk into the street. And eventually uh, they jump into the, uh, their van and they take off. And when the choir came into church on that Sunday, you talk about shouting. I mean, the choir felt vindicated. It's like, we chased you know, these folks out, we pushed them out with the power of our voices. They sang like they have never sang in their life on that Sunday because they came in truly as victors uh, with victory in their spirit because they had surrounded hate and pushed them out with the sounds and songs of our, our ancestors. And they felt the power of their faith at that moment. Wow, it is. Thank you for sharing that because I feel like that is 
the dancing in the darkness. It's just so beautiful how your church overcame the darkness and even old women who are short can overcome the evil giants of this world. It's just, you wrote it so beautifully and I appreciate you sharing and giving your time on Madame podcast. Like I can talk with you all day, but I know you're busy. You're probably writing another book. So I just appreciate so much your time for sharing about Otis's dream and all the connections with Dr. King and the book that you wrote. It's so beautifully written. It's called Dancing in the Darkness, Spiritual Lessons for Thriving in Turbulent Times. I hope everyone goes and buys it, read it with your children, read it with your parents, read it in your churches and in your schools. I think everybody needs to grab this book, Dancing in the Darkness. And I'm just so glad for how God has blessed you with all these talents of filmmaking and writing and preaching and so many things. So thank you so much, Reverend Moss, for thank coming you. on Madame today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. And I hope to see you in person one day again. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> we look forward to that. We look, yep. look forward to that. Okay. Thank that you. book signing. We're going to have that book signing. Yes. Yes. And I want you to sign a sign uh, your book for me. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> when it comes out. Yes. So I'm just so thrilled and congratulations on so many levels on this new book. And Thank you me. wrote so many other books and you wrote one with your father and then with the film, with the 18 awards. It's you are an inspiration <laughs> to so many of us. So thank you so much. Madame is sponsored by Methodist Theological School in Ohio. MTSO provides theological education and leadership in pursuit of a just, sustainable, and generative world. MTSO's five graduate degrees include the Master of Divinity Master of Arts in Social Justice, and Doctor of Ministry. Learn more at www.mtso.edu. Hello, fellow traveler. If you are like a lot of us today, you're probably worn out from the stress of the pandemic and need a break from all of the political, polarizing noise that surrounds us. Please consider joining us at Southern Lights Conference, January 13 to 15, 2023, on beautiful St. Simon Island, Georgia, as we reimagine faith in word, the world, the cosmos, we invite you to gather with us live and virtually, share with like-minded sojourners, and connect with the beauty of creation. For sponsorship inquiries, please email madangpodcast.gmail.com.